Pachango. Hope you're doing well out there. I've been uh, kind of busy with lots of shit. I just drove to LA and back. A uh, quick visit to see my mom, uh, Julie, who some of you know, some of you have interacted with in your t-shirt purchases and beer koozie purchases and other purchases from mom's garage, which she likes to call the cottage. Um, yeah, it was interesting. Is uh, five days of driving for a three-day visit. Hmm. Yeah. But, uh, anyway, it was really good to see mom and my sister and, uh, friends, Aunt Dot, who's been on the podcast. Uh, you can find most of the people in my life in the archives somewhere. Mom's been on the podcast. Beth, my sister's been on the podcast. Aunt Dot, Uncle Dan. Uh, sooner or later, everybody gets on the podcast. Um, speaking of which, I don't know. I've been doing this podcast over 10 years, pretty much weekly. And, uh, I've never done anything that long. Uh, it's kind of incredible to me that, that I've held it up, kept going. Um, it's not hard. It's not like getting up and going to the gym every morning or something like that. Uh, I really enjoy it. The weekly thing gets to be a little oppressive because sometimes I feel like, ah, you know, I haven't put anything out for a while. I need to do something and, you know, I'll just do aroma. I'll rant about something, I'll, you know, and then, I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, on the one hand, I feel like I, I need to create content for lack of a better word, um, because some people do support uh, my endeavor, uh, here, my endeavors. Um, and I don't want anyone to feel ripped off or feel like, ah, oh, he took the money and he doesn't do anything. Um, but the passion for the podcast does come and go. And to be perfectly honest with you, it's been a kind of a low ebb recently. Um, and I think that's primarily just because of the nature of the world in the last few years, having separated us so much physically. And, um, you know, if you've listened to this podcast for a long time, you know that I resisted the movement to online interviews. And, uh, as I've said many times, I'd rather interview someone nobody's ever heard of, or not even interview converse with someone no one's ever heard of, but sitting in a room across the table, you know, sitting on the sofa, like just being in the same space, for me, um, creates a very different kind of experience. Now, of course, you are already on the other side of cables and Wi-Fi and all that kind of stuff. So maybe for you, it's not really different. Um, but I have to believe that something of the immediacy of the experience that I'm having with this person comes through in the recording, even if you're listening to it at a, you know, remote location and separated from the event by time and space and technology and all that. 
Um, but certainly in my experience is much more enjoyable when I'm actually, um, you know, having an organic interaction with someone. Um, but having said that, there's a lot of value to speaking with someone and bringing someone to your attention, uh, in even in, you know, less than ideal circumstances. So I have kept it going through COVID and, and even now that COVID seems to be in abeyance, um, you know, while we wait for the next virus, um, I do feel like, uh, I'm probably going to do the podcast a bit less frequently or just a bit more organically. So, you know, there could be times when I'll release two or three in a week and other times where I'll go two, three weeks without releasing any, just depending on who I happen to meet and, um, the circumstances. So, uh, I hope you don't mind that. Uh, I, I want you to know I'm not forgetting about you. I'm just trying to move with the seasons, you know, the internal seasons. And, um, here, you know, obviously not only COVID is a factor, but the circumstances of life, you know, I'm working most days, uh, on this house that we just bought, um, and I'm learning plumbing and I'm learning construction and I'm you know, focused on this stuff. So I'm not spending as much time sitting in front of the computer as I have been in recent years for better or worse. So anyway, uh, that's just my mea culpa for when you don't hear from me for a little while. Um, that's why, you know, and then on the other hand, when I, when I put out too much, what I, what feels like too much to me, right? Where you're getting those of you who subscribe on subset Substack, you get an email every time I post something. So, uh, if I post, uh, three or four articles and, uh, a podcast in a week, that could be five emails. And I don't want anyone to be going to their email and saying, God damn, this guy is fucking harassing me. Half my emails are coming from the same person. Fuck that guy. I, I don't want that, you know? Um, so there is a thing if, if you're getting too many emails, uh, at the bottom, you'll see there's a thing where you can click and just get the monthly summary. So last thing I want to do is, is hassle or annoy anybody. So that's why I try to set up those alternate channels. Today's guest is a guy named Mike Marr. I've wanted to have him on the podcast for a long time. In fact, I did uh, sit down and record a podcast with him about a year ago. And the, um, the platform that I was using at the time just totally fucked it up and it was unusable and that sucks. I hate when that happens. It's probably only happened maybe, I don't know, 20 times or something out of 550 episodes I've recorded. Um, sometimes it's the platform. Sometimes it's the microphone. Sometimes it's, uh, you know, I f just fuck something up somehow, you know, human error. Um, but in any case, uh, we were going to re-record it and then I went traveling and, um, and then Mike had a baby and bought a house and like all sorts of shit went down. And, uh, so he wasn't really available for that, uh, until now, uh, when things are, he's sort of got things under control. Anyway, Mike is a fascinating guy. He's, um, a breathwork coach, I guess. He, he has a podcast, um, where he talks about breathwork, talks to some of the leading experts in the world. You can find him, uh, at take a deep breath dot 
co i think because uh, he's in the uk um but in any case just google take a deep breath and mike mar m-a-h-e-r and you'll find him um and he's on he's got a big youtube channel like amazing like he's built it up to I don't know, 150, 160,000, uh, subscriptions already, which is very impressive for a guy who's got 27 subscriptions on his YouTube channel. <laughs> I don't know how many I have, but sure as fuck isn't six figures. Um, anyway, so Mike Marr, take a deep breath. Really interesting guy. Now don't turn this off if you're like, eh, I don't really give a shit about breathing exercises because we barely talk about that. Um, most of the conversation is about that eternal question of how do you, um, first of all, how do you attune yourself to hear messages that are coming from the universe, from your soul, from your unconscious? Um, you know, quit this job, break up with this person and this relationship, go back to school, drop out of school, you know, hit the road, stay home, whatever. How do we attune ourselves to hear these things? And then how do we know that we're interpreting them properly? Because sometimes the universe sends us a clear message. It's clearly a message, but it's not clear what the message is saying. Uh, I, I talk about a couple examples of that in my own life. And, um, I think that's a, that's an important question. Mike has done, you know, in the last five or six years, Mike has pivoted his entire life, quit his job, broke up with his girlfriend, started a new relationship, started a new business. Um, you know, he's just totally transformed himself from someone who was, doing what felt like the wrong thing, but seemed like the right thing um, to someone who's doing something that feels right and meaningful and aligns with his interests and his passions. And, and I'm really fucking happy for him. He's, he's a really good dude and he deserves that. So that makes me happy to, to bring him to you and, and to bring this conversation to you because I think, Aside from what Mike's doing in particular, um, that's just a really interesting thing to talk about. You know, how do you, how do you recognize when it's time to make a move and how do you know which direction to move? How do you know when you're on the right path? I think these are eternal questions that we're all asking all the time. So anyone who's got any insight into that is, is worth chatting with, in my opinion. All right. I am going to play you out or in or over with a song that aligns with that. I played it on the podcast once before years ago. Um, it's called Don't Leave Your Life Too Long, and it's by Kim Churchill. I don't remember if Kim contacted me. Someone contacted me and was like, you got to listen to this guy's music. Or maybe it was Kim saying, hey, you know, I think you might like this music. I don't remember. But in any case... um, Whoever brought him to my attention, I appreciate it. He's a very talented uh, singer-songwriter from Australia. Kim Churchill, the song is called Don't Leave Your Life Too Long, and the guest is Mike Marr. Thank you for listening, and if you're not subscribed on Substack, go on over there to chrisryan.substack.com, give me your email, and I will annoy the shit out of you. Thanks. Bye. 
was walking one day through the big lights, wondering when the world became so tired. Bottles of vodka flashed as the Coca-Cola sign shone like moonlight. Now wondered when the world became so wild. Even the clearing of the streets, it was all tiled. And in the corner stood a tree in a cage. The screen on the side of a skyscraper stood a war child nestled in amongst the stocks, the shares, and the sports scores of the day. Here we are, Mike. We're we're at it. We're trying again, taking another swing at this. Uh, a lot's happened since we got together to record this podcast, and we had some technological fuck up and ended up not being able to use it. What was that? Six months ago? A year ago? I, I think a year ago. I think a year ago. Yeah. A year ago. And so yeah. since then, you've quit your job. You've had a baby. You've moved apartments. Uh, anything else? Any, any, have you beaten cancer? Have you, uh, you know, <laughs> right. mastered manned flight or anything? <laughs> it's been a big yeah, year. I'm, 
I've done all the th- all the stressful things that you shouldn't do in one year, right? So, um, yeah, so we bought a house and we, you know, we went we through that nesting house. phase and um, never planned really on having a baby. Or we, we kind of spoke about it, but it was more, oh, we'll do that in a couple of years. Um, and then we got pregnant, which was ace. Um, and then, yeah, and then I found out I was getting made redundant in the job, which was a blessing because I've been meaning to quit that job for a number of years to start mm. the, the business full time. So, um, it's, it's either the best time to run a business or the worst time. It's probably a bit of both, but, um, yeah, it's, it's things have changed a lot since we last spoke, but I must say it's, it's really wonderful. Yeah. Well, you look calm. I don't know. Do you have like a, a make me look calm filter on Zoom or something? I should have that, shouldn't I? It might, it might be all the breath work. I don't know. But yeah, I feel pretty, I feel pretty good. I feel Do pretty you? calm. And also I'm talking to you, man. So it's always, oh, that's you always very chill calm. me out. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't believe that, but I'll, I'll pretend I do. Uh, well, anyway, it's really good to, to connect with you again. Um, we, and I, I should say, I don't know if this is something I should say publicly, but, why not? We're talking. Um, you were so generous and so cool. You know, you contacted me to set up my, a YouTube channel and you did all this work on the YouTube channel. And then, um, I got this deal with Substack and, and part of the deal was I can't do anything on any other platform and I can't advertise. And, um, so I'm sorry about that. And, uh, you were really graceful and, uh, you know, that, that was, I felt bad about that because you had invested time in, in the project we were going to do together. And then suddenly we, I couldn't do it for a while. So, um, thanks for being chill about that. It, it, it was a blessing in a number of ways. Number one, um, it got me connected to you, which was ace. And, and we had a couple of conversations and you came on my podcast. Um, it also made me realize I don't want to be a video editor. So it was a really good thing that happened. So, so ironically <laughs> now for like my, um, podcast, I've edited that out. I've, I've outsourced that now, which I never wanted to do because my background was like video editing and all that sort of jazz. And so, um, it was like, oh, I, I also felt this thing around, oh, I'm letting Chris down. I should be pumping out more content for him. And mm-hmm. so it, 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 the universe spoke, I think, and I think it worked out really well for us, for us both. So yeah, so it, but it, it made me think, cause I was thinking, oh, I could do yours. Maybe I could get in touch with Duncan and different people and do all their podcasts. And then I was like, right. I'm not really enjoying this. I'd rather be like making the content. So it was a, it worked right. out quite well. Right. Yeah. So you, I mean, I'd like to, I'd like to talk about breath work and, you know, come to that, um, and, uh, really pick your brain about that. But I'd like to, uh, if you're willing go back, cause I remember in our previous conversation, the, you had some major life transformation, um, what, five years ago, something like that, the Camino five, and all that? Yeah, six, six, seven years ago. Yes, yeah, so 2017 was the Camino. I went through my divorce about a year and a half before that. So that, that kind of mid thirties, which I've heard from a few people now seems to be quite a transformative period in people's yeah. lives, that mid to late thirties. And yeah, so everything kind of, that old life kind of just died, the early thirties life. And there was a huge, huge transformation that happened. It all started with, um, it all started with, getting married and not really wanting to get married but that being Mm. the next the next phase and um hearing you on joe rogan years ago years ago when i was working away and uh and and you know whole you know you guys have all inspired so many people and just hearing that oh there's another way to do stuff 
and um, not and then not really ever acknowledging that there was a problem in the marriage not really being that open about it in my head you know you kind of just brush it to one side and think things will get better um what and was she the problem? ended the marriage what, was it just incompatibility or was there some it was inco- yeah it was it was incompatibility it was um so with 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 Nina now who we've just had our little boy with it's just it's completely different it's effortless it's it's mm. just the love is there you know the, the attraction everything it's just it's just effortless um and i think i was really young when i got with my ex-wife you know i was i was sort of 21 22 i didn't have a clue what i wanted to do with my life i was all over the place um and so in hindsight i should have done something much sooner but i was too much of a coward to to break out of that and and so she was the one that ended up um making that decision for both of us we sold our house and we were looking to move to a bigger house mm. and um we were just in rented accommodation and for the first time there was nothing tying us together for about 10 years and so it's oh we are completely free now if we want to be and so we, we went our separate ways and i always was inspired by your story around you know staying close with your your ex-partners and i i, I tried that but it, it didn't work for us for a number of reasons which i won't all get into now but we did we did i did at least uh attempt to go down that route because i've never even considered that before but just off the back of that relationship a number of losses happened so that relationship died my favorite dog in the world died as well little lucky and my grandma died all within the period of i don't know about 10 weeks and the house was gone and i was 35 and just living in my parents like tiny little box room it's like fuck that's bad that's you know something really hit me hard i was like shit life changed really quickly um and then you know we spoke about this last time but for the viewers you know i found this this crazy dutch iceman called wim hof and um something inside me compelled me to book a one-way not a one-way flight book book a ticket to go and see him um and this is just as he was taken off i think he'd been on rogan a few months before and and just jumping into the ice water um huffing and puffing seeing visualizations of what i i don't know is it god is it dmt i don't know i saw all these crazy visualizations i was weeping and just had this massive transformational experience was this in and, poland um, this was in poland yeah on the czech border on mount Schneska. so if anyone's not seen the documentary yet there's a vice documentary on youtube that's free it's about 40 minutes long and it's it's there so you go to wim's house and jump in the pool and climb a mountain in your underwear and and all that right. good stuff and and be around a load of other people and like hugging and eye contact and um you know eating food together and i've been i've lost all my friends through the marriage you know it'd been one of these kind of um uh all-encompassing codependent relationships where everybody else it was really hard to get out and do things and so i've been very isolated for a number of years um and then to and go from what, that to what were around, you doing for a living then what, what was your uh, work? i work i worked for a big energy company in the uk called british gas and i was there for like 15 years so it was and like so one of these, I was just in the in the office. Right. It was one of these jobs where like it's secure, decent pay, but you're kind of locked in and there's no meaning. Yeah. And, and it's an energy company that's destroying the planet. And here's the here's the really messed up thing, which I know will you'll be like, oh, you have levels. So I was a level eight when I started. And when you get promoted, you become a level seven. Mm. And then they trick you through this. And I was thinking maybe one day I'll become a level six and you fight. I remember I eventually got the level six after about 10 years and I got a four grand pay rise. And I was like, huh, that didn't really seem worth it this magical thing because yeah but if you get a level five then you get a company car you know oh. so there's all these like mystical yeah. things and right. it's only now that i've been able to and joe rogan does a wonderful thing about it. you don't even realize it's a game or you don't even realize it's a trap and um i didn't even realize it was a trap it was designed in that way to keep you going but yes yeah, so i was in this meaningless 
to be fair, at the same time, I learned so much. I learned communication skills. I learned how to sell. I learned customer services. I learned how to lead people. Um, so it was a big education. I, you know, I, I was, I'm a different human from the human that started that company in 2004. Um, but there was no, there's no like, I don't know, golden nuggets at the end of it. It's just retirement. You know, you're never yeah. going to do anything else. You're not really changing people's lives, but I did learn a really good skill set, which has taken me forward to where I am today. So I'm very grateful for that, but I'm also really grateful that I was able to get out. Um, so the Wim Hof thing was the start of that and me going, Oh, because everyone's like, that's really weird. You're going away by yourself. Nobody goes away by themselves. It's like, oh, maybe I'm a bit weird. So, um, you may have spoken about this. People say like you spend all of your life trying to fit in. And then when you do fit in, you want to kind of stand out. Mm. And so I was at that point where I've been spent all my life desperately trying to fit in. And now in this kind of current epoch, I'm desperately trying to stand out. But it's really mm. weird because I've never liked that before. But the Wim Hof thing was just like, holy shit, there's some magic out there. You can change your breath and you can see colors and lights and, and all this sort of stuff. And you meet this guy, this magical guru guy, crazy dude. And uh, he's like playing guitar and drinking beers and singing and dancing and, and all this sort of stuff. Um, and that was that was the real start of it. But then that, and we can jump into any of these bits, but it went from that to me going back to work. And my boss who said to me, really held my best interests at heart i think he's like look because i was ready to quit because women asked me to do a documentary with him he's like come and do um matt kilimanjaro we're gonna do it in 21 hours you're gonna film it because i told him i've got a film production background mm. you're gonna film it and you're gonna be there and do it. I was like, oh that's amazing and that, that didn't happen unfortunately but i was telling my boss i'm gonna quit and i'm gonna do that and he's like look don't do anything just take the weekend really calm have a real think about what you're trying to do and for the right reasons and the wrong reasons, I got back to work Monday and I was like, yeah, I'll probably keep my job. My job's probably a bit safer. You know, that's a bit crazy to, to do that. And it took me another couple of years to really get ready to leave my job. It was when I then, um, I did a Tony Robbins conference in London and, um, he has this visualization exercise called the Dickens process and, um, it takes about two or three hours and there's 13,000 of you in the room. And so this is on like day three, I think, out of a four day seminar. And you, you're absolutely knackered because you've been, you know, you've been there 12 hours a day. And so he's getting you to think about all the things that are holding you back in life. And, you know, if you go forward two years and you haven't changed these things, what's that going to do for you? And let's go forward five years and 10 years. And this is, I'm but, butchering this like, you know, three hour process. Everyone's crying and upset. And he's like, imagine if you then removed this and did the things you wanted to do. And, um, I was like, I need to quit my job. And it was, it was just the message that came back. So, so, um, that Monday I then went to, uh, work and I handed my notice in and that was, that was 14 years into that career. And I was like, I'm done. I'm out. And that's when me and Nina bought one way tickets out of the country and sold the bed and sold the car and just, just went traveling around the world mm -hmm. just before the pandemic, about a year before. So we picked the, the right year. So that's, that's kind of the overarch thing, but somewhere in the middle of all that's the Camino as well. So I did the Camino in between all of that. And that's kind of how the, the timeline fits in. You, you used the phrase earlier when we were <clears throat> talking about the, the whole aborted video thing that, that we were working on. You said the universe spoke to us. Mm. And I, I think a lot about the universe speaking to us and <clears throat> like, how do we know when the universe, like, how do we interpret what the universe is saying? You know, like, 
I don't know. I, I I was just talking with Anya about this the other day. We we drove from L.A. to Crestone. We have these seventeen-hour conversations, and one of the things we were talking about was how something can happen, and it seems clear that the universe is is sending you a message. Yeah, but the message, like, so I'll give you an example. Uh, in nineteen eighty-nine. There was a woman that I had been seeing for years off and on. We kept trying to make it work. And then we'd get together and, you know, it was one of those things where from a distance it, it was ideal, but then you mm. get up close and it's like, Oh shit, there's this and there's that. And she, you know, she did this and she says this and it just like in close proximity, it didn't really work. The sex was great, but everything else was kind of difficult. Um, and then we would, and also, and, and I don't mean to trivialize it. It wasn't just sex. It was like soul to soul. It worked, but two people living in a apartment together, it didn't work. Um, and so we kept, as we went through our twenties, we would, you know, separate and we'd grow a year or two. We'd be like, I think I'm ready to make that work now. And, and I haven't met anyone who's even close to her in terms of that soul thing. Yeah. So I think we've worked out. She's matured. I've matured. Let's try again. And we, I spent my twenties doing this back and forth. Anyway, I, I moved to San Francisco and, uh, to, to try again with her and we rented an apartment. And the day we were moving into the apartment, literally, you may have heard me tell this story before. Uh, I'm a buddy of mine and I are with the sofa going through the front door into the apartment and a the fucking earthquake hits the big one, the one where the bridge fell and all that shit, literally moving into the apartment and the fucking walls, the plasters falling out of the walls and the windows are all smashing. And we're like, ah, and we dropped the sofa and we run out on the street because it was a ground floor apartment and we we're afraid the whole building was going to come down. I mean, that's the universe saying something right now at the time, what I interpreted that as was the universe saying, okay, are you willing to work for this? It's not going to be easy. You're going to move into this apartment and there's going to be plaster dust everywhere and they're going to have to fix the windows. But if you work your way through this, you're going to come out on the other side and it's going to be fantastic. And now I look at it and it's like the universe is saying, dude, what the fuck is wrong with you? What are you doing? You've tried this five times with this woman. It doesn't work. Move the fuck on, you know? So it's, it's a funny thing. The universe speaks, but it's almost like it speaks in a way where we can hear whatever we want to hear at the moment. So how did you know, like in your divorce and in quitting the job and with Wim Hof and like, how did you know what was true? You know, like, how did you? How did you sense the, I mean, how, how were you confident in what the message was, I guess is what I'm trying mm. to say. Well, the, the, the whole, the marriage one was not my choice, but it felt right. I don't know, man, you know, pop me. Wait, let's go back you know, to Steve Jobs you say, again. You say it wasn't your choice, but yeah. also, you know, when a relationship isn't working. Yeah. Yeah. And that's you true. said, I, I, yeah, that's true. So I knew it was like, done. Yeah, I couldn't end it. Yeah. Yeah. So we spoke about Steve before we hit record, Steve Jobs. And and he has this wonderful uh, thing he said, that I think it was in the Harvard Address, where he says, you can't connect the dots looking forward, 
but you can only connect them looking backwards. Mm. And and the more I, I have that on my little playlist of of things, and that comes up every now and again. And I've saved that whole audio as one of my MP3s. And if I hear that, it's at a different points in my life. And I'm like, oh shit, yeah, the the dots have changed. You know, and I can look back and see them. Going forward, though, I don't know, man. I don't know if it's just. If, if I could really say I knew at that point, or maybe just like magnetically, it was just a little bit more nudged. And I just went off that way a little bit. And at the time, maybe didn't even really know, like I would never go and book to Poland to go and see some guy and jump in an ice bath, but something compelled me. But I don't know if consciously I'd, I'd thought it through and really right. analyzed it and done a to-do list. It just kind of happened. And maybe it's about getting out your own way a little bit. I don't know. I honestly yeah. don't know. If you, I guess if we could figure that out, we'd be, uh, we'd be millionaires. Well, I mean, I, I do think it's a, it's the million dollar question, right? Like, how do we know what the message is? Because, you know, clearly quitting your job was the thing to do. But when you thought about it for a weekend, you reconsidered and ignored the message coming mm-hmm. into you, right? But yeah. the message, you know, buy a ticket to Poland and go fucking stand in ice water with this crazy Dutch dude you heard that one and you listened to that one. You didn't think about yeah. it for the weekend and say, Oh, what am I doing? That's 500 pounds I could spend on something else. And yeah. you know, you, you followed through on that one. I, I just, when I imagine people listening to this, I feel like there are so many people who are in that position that you were in where it's like, fuck, this doesn't feel right, but how do I know? it's time to leave. How do I know it's time to make it that decision? How do I, how do I stop second guessing myself? How do I sense that I'm on? I remember reading, you know, when I was roughly that age, early thirties. And and I think everyone is kind of like trying to, you know, I I think you go through your twenties fucking up and making mistakes and pretending, you know, what you're doing. And then, Somewhere in your thirties, you, you start to actually figure out who you are. And then I think that's when the real moment of truth comes because either you are going to stick to the mistakes you made in your twenties or you're going to have the humility and courage to say, fuck, I was wrong and start over, which is really hard. Right. But it only gets harder. So better to do it as soon as possible. Um, Anyway, I remember reading, uh, have you read, uh, Carlos Castaneda? You know who he was? He was a really interesting guy. He was an anthropologist and he wrote this book. Um, I think the first book was called The Teachings of Don Juan. Um, and he claimed to have gone to Mexico and met this shaman who had magical powers and could, you know, sort of like reappear in different places and space. And he had all these really interesting teachings. And um Castaneda wrote about his experiences with this guy later. Um It, it was basically proven that he was making it up because he was taking, you know, some traditions from one tribe and teachings from a different tribe and sort of mixing them all together and he claimed it was real, but it wasn't really real. And, you know, so it turned into this whole thing, but he was one of the most famous writers alive in the seventies. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, apparently Castaneda says to him at one point, he's like, he says, all paths lead to the same place. Mm-hmm. Nowhere. 
So don't, you don't choose a path based upon where it goes. You choose a path based upon how you feel when you're on it, right? Because when you're on the right path, it fills your heart mm-hmm. and you feel like every day is rich with meaning. And when you're on the wrong path, it drains your heart and mm-hmm. every day you feel weaker and weaker and weaker. That's the only way to know when you're on the right path, not mm-hmm. looking, okay, where is this going to lead me? Fame, fortune, you know, happiness, power, whatever it is, that's the wrong way to judge your path. You can only judge it by how it feels under your feet. Yeah. Love anyway. that. That's, yeah. You know, it's, um, I, I would listen a lot to um, Alan, Alan Watts. Um, yeah. And in particular, has this um, one thing, which is like, um, you know, uh, people say they, they often, he says, he says, I speak to groups of students and often say, I want to be writers and poets and ride horses all day, but I can't make any money that way. And he goes, and he goes, if you spend your time chasing the money, uh, keep, if you keep, I'm butchering this, by the way, if you do things you don't enjoy to earn money, to keep doing things you don't enjoy, then that's completely stupid is the way he says it. Um, and so better to live an out of doors life, a life where it has meaning and, you know, it's a lovely, beautiful thing. Uh, and I'll have that plus the Steve Jobs thing and a couple of other things. So clearly I was on, I knew deep inside I was on the wrong path. Go, mm. I would walk every day to this corporate job. I was at the same office for over 10 years. It was 14 years in total for the company. I can't remember. I worked out how many thousands of times I'd walk through that front door. And yeah. every time a little bit of my soul would die as I'd go through that front door. <laughs> you pay the uh, toll. Yeah. Pain, yeah. And it was a spinny door. So you'd go through it. You'd have to really push it as well to get in. And every time it's like, and it was, and it was a draining job because I'm very introverted and I was a senior manager. So I was in charge of a lot of people and you have to be a bit more extroverted because you're in front of people. Hey, how you doing? Or oh, we need to have coffee later and talk about this. You know, all that kind of schmoozy rubbish. Uh, at least that's how I felt I had to do it. Um, and I was always getting told you're too soft for this job. You're too accommodating. You're too nice. And yet I kept getting promoted. So that was always a bit confusing. And eventually I was like, I'm just going to be me. It took me a few years to get that way. I'll just, I'll just be me. And I did, did, did all right in that company. Um, and it made things but i always knew it was the it was the wrong path and so on those walks to work uh i would be listening to alan watts or joe rogan or one of those things one of those little clips on youtube where it's like joe rogan talking about society trap and all those sorts of things and so mm-hmm. that would that would, my voice inside was going something's wrong here now whether i ever felt about it that openly and ever ever really thought about it or just went yeah yeah shut up we'll deal with that when we're old you know but there was definitely that voice and then just just um would I, would we, would I be where I am now if we hadn't sold that house and uh, gone through that divorce? I don't know. And this, this is something that keeps me up sometimes like going, would I have had the gumption to, to make those changes? I don't know. Is there a metaverse version of me that's still married and fucking miserable out there in a different, you know, version? And I'm yeah. the one that got that lucky break and got out. I, I don't know. These are things that I think about a lot, but I'm very grateful because if that, those events hadn't happened, then I wouldn't have had my little boy and all those sort of things. So, you know, all paths yeah. lead nowhere. Yeah. Interesting. Lucky break is an interesting phrase, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, because it was a breakup. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It was the, the breaking of a relationship that, yeah. that you, you loved her and yeah. you had a life together and it broke. Yeah. And that's the only thing that allowed you to move on to, to something much better for you. Yeah. Um, so lucky break. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting, interesting phrase. So yeah. tell me about the, the Camino. I, I think last time we didn't really talk about it much yeah. and that was in my notes and I was like, fuck, I wanted to, Pick yeah. his brain about the Camino Santiago. So 
How did that happen? What what inspired you to do that? So funnily enough, still while I was with my wife um, and she would go out at nights, um, I would watch some travel films. I'd watch the one about the guy that died in Alaska. I always forget the name when I talk to you, but you know, I'm talking about he died in the bus. In oh, Alaska. oh, Into the Wild. Into the Wild. Christopher Into the Wild. Yeah. I watched um, A Walk in the Woods, you know, with uh, Robert Redford and, and, and all these like travel things. I was like, oh, I want to be a traveler, you know. And um, one of them I watched was called The Way by Martin Sheen. Oh, I've seen that. Is, and it's yeah. and, and and ironically when you're on the camino so many americans are there because of that film and, and i was one of them i'd saw that and i thought because i'd love to do your trails in america but i'm scared of the crackheads and the bears and so i don't think i'll be i'll be doing <laughs> <laughs> that's what i've heard is the problem on those trails crackheads and bears. yeah <laughs> but um i was like oh you can do this in europe oh that's pretty cool and it's spain it's it's really close and so i just did a little bit of research and then after um the wim hof stuff um, again, it was just a feeling of, I feel like I need to, I need to walk. I need, and I'm still processing my, my dog and I'm still processing my nana and my life and all that sort of jazz. And so, um, the Wim Hof was in the November, December. And in that May, the following May, I booked a ticket out to south of France and then we crossed the Pyrenees. I say we, it was me. I did it all by myself. Um, and it was that film that inspired it. And I read a couple of books after. And one of my favorite quotes um, I read in one of these books, it was an Australian author who, who'd done the Camino. And he said, the Camino is like a, a life within a life. And I really like that. You have the initial birth and then you grow up, you become a teenager, you do some silly things on the Camino. And, it, and eventually you face the inevitable end, the death of the Camino. You know it's going to end. You know it has to end. And it was always about the whole journey that happened. And I, I loved that. And I remember as... And obviously we can dig into the Camino a bit, but I remember just fast forwarding to the end, getting really sad that it was going to be over soon, even though I was exhausted. Um, but yeah, it's, if anyone's on the fence about it, it was one of the most like wonderful experiences of my life to go there uh, by myself to make friends. We, there's about a group of eight of us all came individually apart from two Irish boys who were friends and we became this little pack. And we would travel along the Camino together and we would find the hotels together and we would have dinner together at night and play games. And we came really, really close. And it's something weird that happens when you're walking with somebody for 10 hours a day. And, you, and, you know, sometimes eye to eye contact can be quite intense. Um, you know, you go for a date and you're sitting opposite each other and it's like, right, we need to share stuff. But when you're kind of side by side and you're just walking, and you're going to have a beer and, mm-hmm. you know, you, you, you're all sleeping in the same dorm together. You, you, you get this. Well, I felt this way. I had this like a 10 year friendship put down to about 30 days. You're sharing everything and everything. So we all became really, really close. And then towards the end, we all started to go off because we had different places we needed to get to. And mm-hmm. so that all happened. And then, yeah, and then we got to the inevitable end, but it's a, it's a beautiful experience of just walking. And I think about what it satisfies and like human beings, you know, you know, more than anyone about hunter gatherers, but I think I was in a community, I was in daylight. Mm-hmm. Um, I was sharing stories. I was moving my body all day. I had purpose. Um, I kind of had like a tribe where we we're looking after each other and a load of other stuff. And it just kind of ticked like loads of like human boxes. Mm-hmm. And it just felt like the most natural state to be in always walking somewhere as a group and so it's very addictive and my plan is to do it every 10 years now so i've got four years left till the next one and so Mm. i'd love to do that every 10 and eventually you know take my son and and all that sort of jazz but um it's 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 a wonderful beautiful experience and one of the most powerful things i will say is um you are never alone because there's thousands of people doing it you're sharing a room together but when you're walking 
you can very quickly have peace and quiet, but the minute you want to just talk to somebody, you just go, Hey, what, why are you walking the Camino? And I think without exception, every person had a, had a story mm. and every person said, my wife has died or I've got cancer or, you know, I've just lost my job or I've lost my house. And, you know, I've gone through a divorce and my dog had died and blah, blah, blah. And so everybody had something like that. And not always that profound, but they always had a, a reason why they'd taken 35 days off their job or quit their job because it's a big undertaking um, to do. And so instantly there's this huge connection. And and when I got home, I got a little bit like depressed because, or, or just sad, maybe depressed is too strong because suddenly that community, that community had gone and I'd walk down the street and you don't even get eye contact off your neighbor, you know? And I was like, shit, yeah. this is really bad. And so I, 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 even to this day, I crave that community because yeah. it's not here. I don't even, we've got a new neighbor that's moved in two doors down. I've not even seen them yet. They've been there three months, you know, and mm. it's just, it's just sad. So yeah, yeah, that's a whistle stop of the Camino. Yeah. So when you, you say you want to do it every 10 years, do you want to do the Camino or will you do a different path? I mean, I did the most popular one, the Frances, which is the one that goes across the Pyrenees and goes down. And I don't, I don't even know, maybe 200,000 people do it or did it last when I did it. I think it maybe has doubled since then, pre-COVID. Mm. Um, but yeah, I would like to do the Portuguese one. I hear there's one in Rome now. I just, yeah, just the idea of taking a different path um, is, yeah, the Portuguese one's meant to be really beautiful. The, the Norte is meant to be wonderful as well. But um I think it's just the idea of taking some time out of your life to have that life within the life. Just, right. it's just really appealing. And, and, and there's, there's that other piece around all you've got is what's on your back, which right. is just a wonderful place to be as well. And, you know, I've right. got my, I've got, I've got two, two pairs of pants, which I wash in the sink, socks, a pair of trousers, and, and life is just much simpler that way. Although I still had like 20 kilograms, which was way too much. I had to dump loads of stuff because I over prepped massively. And I saw these, um, these retirees from England and they had little day packs and I was like, where's all your stuff? I was like, yeah, we've got our pants and here we've got a couple of t-shirts and they'd done it before. And I was like, right. I was so jealous because you know, you've, you've done the travel so many times and I still made the same mistake again. When we went traveling in 2018, <laughs> like you yeah. pack all the crap and um, yeah. Wim Hof actually says you pack your anxieties in your backpack. And it's so yeah. true. It's like, yeah. what if, what if I need a spare right. phone battery? You know? Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's anxiety about what if, and it's also, it's a, a scarcity based vision of, of the world, right? It's like, if I need it, I won't be able to find it wherever I am. So I need to bring it with me. Right. As opposed to whatever I need, it'll be there or I don't actually need it. You know, I can wait a while. It's yeah. Yeah. You're right. I, I've traveled a lot and every time I overpack, (laughs) it's like the hardest lesson to learn. Yeah. Over and over. It's like, damn, I did it again. I did it again. Yeah. The best thing that happened to me on my first big international trip was when I got robbed and my backpack went from about 50 pounds to about 15 pounds. (laughs) And I was like, and I didn't need any of that shit. Yeah. Thank you, thief, for stealing all that. I thought that was going to happen to me because I, I knew your story and I, and, and, and this is really, part of me was like, maybe I'll get robbed, you know, and, and, and touch, this was the wonderful thing as well. You know, what is it? Einstein that says you've got to live in a, choose to live in a safe universe or a dangerous universe. Mm. We, we went in, nothing happened. We were out of the country traveling for a year and 
nothing. I, we, I remember even at one point we lent these little kids um, in Jordan, Nina's quite expensive like DSLR camera because they wanted to take some pictures of us. And in my head I was like, oh, I think they're going to run away with that camera. And they just took some pictures and gave the camera back. And I was like, wow, so many people I know would never have even bothered. They would never have even trusted those little kids to, to do that. Mm. And so I had my laptop with me. I was convinced I would not come home with that laptop. You know, it's like, there's no way that laptop's going all around the world and still using that laptop to today. So, um, yeah, I was, I was, I think the biggest thing that struck me was like everyone's, most people, most people are really good people. And that yeah. was a really nice thing. And they've got a lot less than you have. And they're just really nice, good people. Like we smashed a motorbike up in um, Myanmar. And I was like, we're in big trouble now. This is going to cost us a fortune. Right. I think they wanted like $5 just, and, they, and we got the motorbike the next day. I had some like tape around the indicators and some other bits and they just gave it us back. And I was like, wow, they could have really took the, you know, they really could have took advantage of us there. And they were like, no, no, it's fine. And so, um, yeah, every time I was just surprised about how beautiful and gracious everybody was. And it makes me think about my own life and how tight I am with money sometimes or mm. scared about something and think, why is it because we've got more to lose that we're tight like that? And they've, I don't know, it was a, a funny one, but yeah, good people all around this planet. I think we forget that sometimes. Well, I, I think it's because we're taught to think of the universe as being stingy. And so we need to be stingy in response. Whereas mm -hmm. people who live in places like Myanmar, you know, most of the world, they depend on each other. They, they, you know, they, they can't possibly have everything they're going to need. Mm -hmm. Uh, so they don't even try. And instead they develop an understanding of the world where if I need it, someone will be around and they'll give it to me just like I would give it to them. And, you know, mm -hmm. so it's, it feels from outside, it's like an impoverished view, but in the end you feel richer because you feel like you live in a universe that provides for you. Yeah. yeah. So I think in light of all this, maybe it's time to rethink this thing about bears and, uh, and crack addicts <laughs> Yes. and then come yeah. and do some hiking over in the States. I'll show you around. Uh, okay. I, I've, Spent a lot of time in the in the woods here, and I've never been attacked by a bear or a crack addict. <laughs> There's still time, <laughs> but I do have I do have my bear crack addict spray just in case, yeah. you know. <laughs> it works on both. Yeah, um, fantastic. Yeah, I've I've always I want to do uh, Camino de Santiago sounds fantastic to me, and obviously I love Spain, um, but I think it's like there's just too many people, and it's too much of a thing. Um, but I have heard about similar pilgrimage trails through the Italian Alps that sound really mm. nice. Yes. You know, I just love the idea, especially, you know, the Camino de Santiago, it's a lot of dorm rooms and young people and yeah, and kind of, I don't need to be listening to, you know, 22 year olds yakking all night. Um, I like yeah. the idea of going from Italian village to village and like actually having a room with a bed and having some really good Italian dinner after walking all day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a little, a little more high end. Yeah. 
I think we're getting to that stage now as well because we, we stayed <laughs> yeah. in some pretty ropey dorm rooms um, and, and one of the big problems you have on the Camino is bed bugs and somehow I avoided mm. that but it's a really and they're lovely little hitchhikers aren't they because they just jump from from place to place um, but the, 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 the Camino from Granada is meant to be pretty isolated in south mm. of uh, and, and the guy that wrote the, the book from Australia who did it he says like he didn't even see any pilgrims till like the last five days because he took oh, this, yeah. this really rare and it was only when he got to um Santiago, he's like, oh my God, this is ridiculous because they were just flying in hundreds or thousands a day, you know, mm. coming in. And so he, he hadn't experienced that piece. But I, my heart is in Italy. I'm half Italian. Um, mm. I speak not a word of Italian, unfortunately, but my mum's side's Italian. And so um, you can't beat the food. You can't beat the coffee, I think. It, it's just, yeah. just a beautiful country. Yeah. 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 I, I'd love it. Um, so let's talk about the, the breath work. Um, so you, I mean, it's, it's really interesting because I think, you know, I, as, as you know, I, I know Wim pretty well and have hung out with him and his family a bunch of times. And you're right. He's an extremely inspiring guy and he's wild. <laughs> he is legitimately fucking wild. Uh, like unfiltered, pure energy i mean i don't know where the energy comes from it's nice. it's incredible i guess it comes from the cold in some ways but i kind of feel like the cold um i haven't i don't know nearly as much about cold exposure as you do or breath work obviously um but with the cold i kind of feel like you know it might be it might align with what we were saying earlier about the universe speaks and we choose what to hear like I, I'm sure there are, uh, immunological responses. You know, it, it's a tonic to your body. It's a shock to your body, which is a good thing. You definitely feel better all day if you've like had that cold exposure. Um, but I think a lot of it is also placebo, which is not to dismiss it. Placebo mm -hmm. is a real thing and it's very, very strong. Um, but I feel like. For me, a lot of the value of cold exposure is simply the process of saying, I want to do this. I know it's going to fucking hurt, but I'm going to do it anyway. And then I do it. And then I get out and I feel empowered, not by the cold, but by the fact that I did something I didn't really want to do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So I feel like it could be anything. It could be a hundred push-ups, or it could yeah. be you know, drinking something that tastes horrible. It, it could be anything where you're overcoming yourself. Yes. You 100%. know? Yeah. Um, we, um, we, especially uh, if other people are involved, like you said with the Tony Robbins thing, if there's a, yes. if it's a group experience, it's even stronger. Mm. I think there's something that has to be physical though for that as well. And I'll tell you why. Cause, um, well, first of all, I, I don't, um, I went to him for the cold. I always make this as a joke on my podcast. I went for the cold, but I stayed for the breath work. So I don't teach the cold and I mm. haven't been in the cold much recently. I've got a bathtub outside and recently it takes me a while to build up to it. So I probably need to go back in soon. Um, but after the whim experience, I was so desperate to get that feeling again. I was going to rebook back up and my friend was like, you're just going to get the same feeling again. But I got that feeling two other times. Once was, um, once was abseiling down the hospital in Oxford and going over the edge 
And I was like, oh my God, this is like the Wim Hof thing. It's like a leap of faith. I'm really scared. And the minute I went over the edge and the rope caught me, I, I felt really good. Because it's like that. We spoke about this, I think, about the divers and they would jump off the boards and you'd see the fear in their faces, the ones that jumped and didn't jump. And so I would lean over the edge. And the other time I got that was when I did some tombstoning or cliff jumping in the Philippines. And I was at the top of this cliff, this 15 meter cliff for about 20 minutes and I was with a group, a guide, and, and, yeah. and the whole thing's been filmed. Poor Nina had to film the whole thing. And and, and the only bit I put on YouTube was me jumping over the cliff, you know, obviously. Um, but I was like, getting the edge minutes. back. <laughs> the rest of it's pretty boring. And, and they said to me, you, you can't, you can't half-arse this. You can't just step over the cliff because the rocks at the bottom will kill you. You have uh, to run and jump. So, right. Fuck. Right. So you have to really commit to it. You can't, you know, so I was like, go to the edge, not to the edge. And eventually I remember the, the minute my feet left the, the, the edge, I felt so free and mm. I was like, oh, thank you. I'm so, and I knew that if I hadn't done that, it would have haunted me till today. Mm. So there's just something about, I don't know, maybe this sounds too extreme. Is, is it putting yourself in some sort of physical danger? I, I don't think so. But maybe it's a, a simulated version of that because when you go into the ice water, your body thinks it's dying. I'm pretty sure it thinks yeah. it's, it's trying to keep you alive yeah um, you're scared of that yeah no i, th I think it, i think it is I, th I and i think you're right i think we can trick ourselves right like mm -hmm. i love doing things that feel dangerous but aren't because yeah. yeah. you get that payoff without the risk yes um so yeah jumping off something high is like that's intense that yeah. is really intense yeah because i think you're right i think the minute now, maybe you felt relief, but the minute I commit and I'm in the air, I feel my body saying that was a terrible mistake. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was just a really bad decision. Uh, and then, and then you survive it and it's like, Oh my God, I'm immortal. This is incredible. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> so what else? What else have you done that, that you said there were two times? Oh, oh, abseiling. So abseiling, ab yeah. abseiling is repelling, right? Is that yes? Uh, yeah. yeah, going back backwards off it. There was another time. I don't know if I, I spoke to you about this previously, but I um after Wim Hof, I thought I'm a mountain climber, and so I oh, decided to climb <laughs> Snowdon. <laughs> Tell that know. story again. That was great. So, so um yeah. so we we me and my fr so my best friend, who's my best friend to today, Scott. Um, he me and him met on the Wim Hof thing like seven years ago. And we both climbed Mount Schneska, Polish mountain, right? Must be a dangerous mountain. Must be like, basically it's Everest. Yeah. And, and so we climbed underwear. And we're like, in our underwear. So we're like, Oh, we can, we can climb any mountain. So you should be like, well, why don't we do the three peaks in our underwear? So the English, the Welsh and the Scottish mountains, um, on boxing day, this is like 10 days after Wim Hof. And we're like, well, yeah, we can do anything. And so my girlfriend, who's only been my girlfriend for a few weeks at this time, she's going, who's going to drive you? And we're like, oh, we'll drive ourselves. Who's going to look after you? Like, no, no, we're going to be fine. And she's like, she said after, she's like, I didn't really know you well enough to like tell you you're being a dick. So she just kind of let it happen and just assumed I knew what I was, I was doing. Um, obviously I didn't. And we got to the first mountain, um, Snowden at uh, 4 PM. So it's almost dark. It's on boxing day. We saw the last two people leave the mountain and we're like, huh, we're the last ones. We didn't really know the last ones, but we were the last ones on the mountain. Had a little headlamp. I left my spare headlamp in the car. I think I don't need this. I'll come back and get my food later. Left everything in the car and we just started climbing and uh, we got lost a few times. I've got some footage of it somewhere. And um, 
we got lost. We couldn't speak properly. Our mouths stopped kind of working because it was so cold. We're in our, in our pants. The snow's there and it's, you know, it's boxing day. Um, and there's a couple of times we got very close to the edge and we just lost our way. And we ended up on, and this is Snowden. You can walk Snowden. And we were grappling on all fours for about an hour and a half. And I remember like, um, I remember like grabbing some mud and pulling and the mud slipped and it rolled down the hill and nearly hit my friend in the face. And we were like, oh my God. So we just focused on getting to the top of this hill and we had no idea if it was going to be like a sheer rock face or not. So we're like, sod it, let's just keep going. And somehow we got to the top and it turned out we'd moved to a completely different mountain um, that was on the side. And um, we, we, we were lucky, but we were at the top and it was all glassy ice. And we tried to ring for mountain rescue. My phone died because it was so cold. And you're in and, your you know, underwear? In my underwear. So I put my clothes back on again. And, and, and the minute you put your clothes on, you start shivering. And so, and then for some reason, Scott said, let's go this way. And we went yeah. that way and we found the railway track that takes you down and we were fine. And so I then went into really chilled. Oh my God, we're amazing. We survived. And then he went into like some sort of PTSD and he just wouldn't talk for about two hours on the way down. So it was a really weird way that we both, we both dealt with it. Um, very lucky, very stupid. And then it was only later we found out people die on that mountain all the freaking time. They die on that mountain in daylight. And I, I had no respect for this mountain mm. at all. I was like, it's a British mountain, Britain's safe. It's basically a hill. And no, no, a handful of people die every year on that mountain, experienced climbers. And two idiots went up there in their pants and somehow survived to tell the tale. So yeah, that's the story. And that, that, but that one didn't give me the Wim Hof. Like, ooh, it gave me more of a deep respect for nature. I think that's what I got from, from that mountain. Yeah. Even without bears or crackheads. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that should be the title of my new book. Bears and crackheads. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> your, your travel adventure book. So, so talk to me about breath work. What, uh, why, why, why does that compel you so much? And why did you decide you want to teach it? And how's that going? And, and, you know, give us a plug for your, your various enterprises here. Where can people find you? Yeah. I, so Wim Hof got me to do huffing and puffing. And, uh, when I, I had no idea about breath work, zero. So I'm huffing and puffing and I'm crying and I'm laughing and, um, Wim's voice is so compelling. And so we went through this whole five day process. I saw what I can only describe as another entity. And we had this like communication, but we didn't really speak. It was like an eye. And I'm obviously going through this quite quickly, but at the time it was so profound. And now it's like a memory of a memory of a memory of a memory I'm telling. But yeah. I remember like, holy shit. It was the first time I'd gone from being like an atheist to, uh, huh, I think there's something else out there. So that was the whole Wim Hof experience. And then I started making YouTube videos about it and, this is like 2016. There was no Wim Hof videos back then on YouTube. Now, you know, thousands of them. And so, uh, people started watching them and I, I, I already had a background in video and I already would post on YouTube, but that was because I made wedding videos. And so I'd post like little clips of the weddings I'd filmed and, and stuff like that. Anyway, so this perfect thing happened of, I was really curious about breath work. I knew how to edit videos and, you know, and I knew a little bit about YouTube. Um, and then I just got obsessed and I, I was down the Wim Hof route for a number of years. And I remember thinking that's pretty much the only breathing exercise there is, right? There's nothing else. And then people would ask me loads of questions on YouTube, mouth or nose, this or that. And I, was like, oh, I don't know. And so I was thinking about this before I got ready for this podcast. You actually, I've, I've done this in a really arse about backwards way. I 
kind of went into the public sphere with with something um and then i've kind of learned my way through it over the last like six seven mm. years and it was only really during the pandemic i got really really serious with it i was like i need to know the science of this i need to learn and i did a load of like certifications and, and different things but then it was the podcast that really grew my knowledge because I got to like pick the brains of like the top experts, like right. every week I'm getting like one-on-one access, like Joe's had, like you've had. Um, and I'm getting to pick these people's brains. Go, Why does that happen? And I'm speaking to doctors and surgeons and yoga instructors and authors and, and everything in between. And everyone's got their own flavor of breathing, um, which is really interesting. And so I've now moved away from the Wim Hof stuff. I don't really go down the hyperventilation route now. I'm not, I teach a lot more of what I'd call like functional breathing, which is like learning to use your nose again, learning to deal with like sleep apnea, learning to deal with asthma, learning to slow your breath rates down, helping like athletes improve their performance, helping like people with stress and anxiety. So it's all that sort of jazz because the Wim Hof stuff is fantastic, but it is, a, I like to call it like a simulated panic attack. And so right. if anyone's had a panic attack, it feels a bit close. It's a bit, a bit awkward. I've got a friend that can't go, go near it. And what I've learned over my kind of few years of this now is most of us need to just chill the hell out. Um, and, and that Wim Hof stuff has a huge place and, uh, and I still do it, but I, I do it probably once every couple of months at most. For me, it's about the slow breathing, the relaxing breathing. There's all these different breathing techniques that make your heart pump differently, change the waves in your brain, build up your resilience to stress. And so I've gone down that route now but i'm still very much got one foot in the the crazy the the spiritual camp so for example um last year i got invited to do hot water rebirthing i don't know if you've ever come across this Mm-mm. um so you're in a hot tub have you uh, oh who's the guy uh stan stan Lathroff? Yeah, so i always forgot Roth. his name okay. yeah yeah i've met Thank him you. um he he also oh. i was going to ask you about holotropic breath work which okay is sort of his version of the wim hof yeah. thing right yeah. So there was him. There was a guy called Leonard. Oh, I forget his name. That's terrible. Leonard. I need to go back on my website and find that. But this, the Leonard guy, he was the guy that invented the hot water rebirthing. Um, and so we were in Glastonbury where he did that. And the woman took me through it. And you're doing a hyperventilation exercise similar to holotropic breathing. And you get into the water and they're playing the noise of the womb. So it's whoa, 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 whoa. And you're hyperventilating, but, but very relaxed. It's not like the, the huffing and puffing of hop. It's more like, <sighs> you're doing that. Eyes are closed. The water's the same temperature as your body. You then put a snorkel in and you go face down into the water and there's two of them holding you. And, uh, you, basically <laughs> I, I could hear like a, what I thought was like a, a woman screaming. And I was like, that's a bit rude while I'm doing my, my rebirthing. No. And it, it, it was me and it was me on the exhale. At the end of the exhale was a scream. And, um, so eventually, so I'd gone into, I don't know, a trance, a hypnosis. I, I don't, I don't, I still don't know. And in the back of my head, I was watching the whole thing, Chris. And I was like, this is fucking weird. I can't wait to tell my friend about this. And, and, um, I'd lost control of my hands. It became little T-Rex baby hands. And they couldn't get me out of the water, they said. So eventually they flip, because they're squeezing your shoulders like you're going through the birth canal. So they're squeezing your shoulders. Eventually this big bloke and the woman, they turn me around. I'm on my back. And she said, I just stopped breathing for about two minutes. And my lips had gone blue. And she said she was getting a little bit nervous, but she let the process play itself out. And then I took a very gentle breath in. And I just started to cry. And I think I cried for about two hours. And I was just crying through this process. And so I, she put me into her shoulders. And she's like, and and in this version of things, she was my mum. And she's like, 
she said the words to me, you're so wanted. I'm so glad you're here. <laughs> and I just burst into tears. I was like, oh my God. And then she had to go and deal with somebody else. So eventually she passed me to another guy and she goes, oh, your daddy's here now. And then he said the same things to me. So it sounds crazy as fuck. I know, but I went through this, this process. Um, and eventually they put me on the grass outside. It was a sunny day and the, and the sun was in my face. And I was like, it was so powerful and I couldn't handle the sun. I was just crying. And, um, I rang my mum that night and asked her, how was my birth? You know, cause I never spoke to her about it before. She's like, yeah, it was fine. No problems. It's like, really? She's like, yeah, I was in hospital for about six weeks though. I was like, what, 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 what do you mean? What's going on there? And she says, well, you know, I, I had a lot of bleeding problems and we had to put you under this lamp for like a, a week because of your like jaundice and stuff. And so I was like, oh, I wonder if that was why I, I don't know. So I had these like things and I was maybe making connections, but the whole thing was, was, was a wonderful experience. But it, but even like a week later, I still hadn't quite processed it. So I've got like a little gym downstairs in my garage, like a very basic gym. And whenever I did anything a little bit too physically intense, I would just start crying again. I was like, oh, this is really weird. Why, why is this happening? So I don't, I don't really know what to do with that process. Some people get very addicted to this. Um, it feels like it's not done yet. And I'm going to go back and do some more at some point. Um, but that's just like another example of what, where the breath can take you. It's just like, there's all these different avenues it goes down. So yeah, that's, that's hot water rebirthing in a nutshell. Mm, wow. Yeah. I met Stan Groff a few times. He's based in the San Francisco Bay area and, uh, he's friends with my friend Stanley Krippner. They've known each other for 50 years or so. Stan Groff was one of the first people who ever did uh, LSD-assisted psychotherapy. Uh, he did it in Czechoslovakia mm -hmm. uh, back in the late 60s, I think. Yeah, interesting guy. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, that's uh, – I've done the holotropic breath work, and I was, I was in a room full of people, and uh, I think – this was in Costa Rica at the ayahuasca retreat center I went to. And man, people were crying and, and having all sorts of emotional reactions. The most I got, I felt lightheaded just from hyperventilating, mm -hmm. but I didn't feel any, um, emotional release or anything that mm -hmm. have you been in, um, you know, float tanks? Have you? Yeah. 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 Yeah, after Rogan. Um, that was, uh, I didn't do any breath work in there. This was years ago, but, um, that was a lovely experience. That was very visual for me. A lot of colors and lights. Have you, I take it you've, you've done that as well? Yeah. Yeah. Quite a bit. There was, there's a place, uh, things called float on in Portland. They're really n nice guys. And they sort of, when I was living there, they said, just come in when, you know, if, if a tank's free, you can use it whenever you want. They just sort of gave me carte blanche. Cause I couldn't afford, you know, 50, $60 a session is quite expensive. And I understand the economics. I mean, they need to charge that much to stay in business, but, um, yeah, yeah that was a great opportunity. So I probably did it 30, 40 times. And, and oh, nice. cause the first couple of times I, I was just lying there like, okay, I'm, you know, here I am lying in, yeah. you know, it's interesting, but you know, yeah. and then as you get more comfortable with it, you, go to deeper i i found it very much like you know like where i was trying to get through meditation but found it difficult to get there because i was always distracted by my body you know like my back hurts my knees hurt uh, got an itch you know and this and that all of those physiological 
reminders kept pulling me away from reaching that state. But in the flow tank, it was like, wow, here I am. And, you know, just, just breathing or just being just existing. And and then at the end of it, like, I felt like I was waking up, but I hadn't really been asleep. Mm. You know what I mean? It's like, I'm coming out of a, of a state that feels like an awakening, but I know that that wasn't sleep. So it's something yeah. different. To what extent does your work with your, your breath work teaching is, is it similar to, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is there's a lot of overlap between breath work and meditation, right? And do you deal with that in your teaching or are you sort of purely physiological, not mm. into the, this more spiritual realm? With, with the teaching, um, we, we try to stick to like science-based techniques for people that kind of, you know, there is that spiritual element, but I stick to the science-based stuff generally. Um, the interesting thing, um, the definition around breath work versus meditation, I always found really interesting, which is like with meditation, you tend to watch the breath. And I was mm. always a terrible meditator. Um, and the reason I think I got so in love with breath work is like you change the breath. And that was the bit for me is like, now I'm consciously connectedly changing mm. that breathing. Right. It gives me something to do. So I'm still technically meditating. Um, there's only, there's one exercise I teach called, teach called breath awareness. That's probably the only meditation, um, exercise I do teach where it's like a hand on the chest, a hand on the belly. And without judgment, we just watch the breath and observe it and see where it is and how we're feeling. I always do that with clients at the start, just so we can get kind of a base of where they are. And then we start to get under the hood and start to change things a little bit to see how that feels. But um, yeah, it's the whole meditation thing is very interesting. We had a, I teach a, a, a group every Saturday and we had um, a lady on the other week called Vijamala Birch. And she'd been through a number of traumatic instance in her life where she's essentially paralyzed now and she was teaching us we have a different guest come on each week and she came on and she was teaching us about mindfulness um and that got me curious again about mindfulness because she said that she had to have this um dye put in her spine um to see where the problems were and and she, she'd been on her back for months and so they said to her in the hospital you need to sit up for 24 hours because if you lay down the, the dye is going to go to your brain it's going to cause you horrific pain and so she's like, I don't know how to get through this. I've been laying for months and now they're asking me to sit. And she said she had this like moment about three o'clock in the morning where she's like, I can't make it. I can't get through to, to the, you know, to the point in the day. And she said she had this awakening where it was like, I don't need to, I just need to get through this moment. And then this mm. moment, and it sounds so mm. simple now, mm. but after she said that story to me, I went back downstairs and I was just playing with my baby and sitting on the chair with Nina. And for the first time in that ages, I became super present and I was just like, aware and I wasn't thinking about the future or the past I was just in this present moment just looking at my baby's face and you know looking at the sofa and all this like really like basic things and it just kind of brought it back again for me this thing around ah oh, hello old friend I've not been here for ages it's really nice to be back here again where I'm not thinking about oh my god I've got to do this podcast and do this and do that so I don't know that was a gift but I don't necessarily teach it but I am very interested by it but yeah we normally get people to slow their breathing down and do gentle breathing techniques. That's what most people need these days um, because we're breathing too fast is the, is the short bit. Mm -hmm. Have you heard that? I remember reading somewhere that, oh, what was this? Like mo almost all mammals have the same number of breaths in their lifetimes. Mm, and also a heartbeats because breath and heartbeat are, are related, obviously. And it was something like 
Yeah, like a mouse and an elephant have the same, roughly the same number of heartbeats. I think it was, oh no, it couldn't have been. I was going to say 70,000 for some reason, but that, that obviously can't be right. But anyway, I, I'll, I'll look this up and I'll, I'll mm. link to it, uh, in the show notes. But I remember reading this and the idea was that, you know, a, a, an elephant's heart rate is very slow and a mouse's mm. heart rate is very high and an elephant lives, you know, 70 years or whatever it is. And a mouse lives you know, six months or whatever, but. If you average them out, they correlate. So you figure wow. out, you know, um, and when I read that, I thought, well, that's the perfect excuse not to exercise a lot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like keep my heart rate pretty low and I'll live longer. I don't think that works scientifically, but that was my takeaway. Um, I don't know, you know, there's something to that because I watched this documentary recently. It's an old BBC thing and they're basically saying on there, you need to do like 60 seconds of exercise a day. You know, because yeah. I think, I don't know what it's like in the US, but in the UK, we were brought up to think the only way to lose weight is to, is to move your body, which obviously has some truth to it. But then I heard that old adage that you can't out exercise a bad diet. And so it gave me that new perspective, like, so why are we exercising there? So I've got like a little bike in the room next door. It's like an air bike. And I just do three sets of 20 seconds now, like full intensity. It's awful. You, you know, you're absolutely knackered after us. But that, like, that 60 seconds is like, plenty i think like it gets my heart going but then i'm not on the treadmill for like two hours like some people right. are so right. i don't know i don't know but that's interesting about the the beats um and, and yeah we you know when we slow our breathing down our heart rate starts to slow down and so and we do say like if you want to live a really short life breathe through your mouth and breathe really fast all the time you know mm. it's kind of the opposite of that so yeah that's interesting if that if that connection's true though which it could be mouse and the elephant yeah, yeah, I'll look it up. Um, I, I wanted to also ask, you mentioned sleep apnea earlier, mm. and uh, I would be irresponsible if I didn't pick your brain a little bit about that, because I have sleep apnea, and uh, I have a machine that I use at night to breathe and all that, to, so I don't snore mm. and, and have the blockage. Um, but my understanding of, of sleep apnea is, uh, at least in my case, that it's largely physiological because yes. the soft palate is uh the doctor who examined me said i had a unusually large soft palate uh in mm -hmm. the back of my throat and also um because of the modern diet and kids don't chew much uh, a lot of us have a sort of an underdeveloped jawbone which yes. then, you know, also creates this sort of crowding in, in the mouth and in the back of the throat. Mm -hmm. So I've had four molars pulled to make room for my teeth and all that. Um, but I've also read that there are, are breathing exercises you can do to help the situation. So I imagine what is that to, to tighten the tissue in the back of the throat and, and strengthen the muscles. We, we typically work on like the, what we call like the biochemistry. So it's like your tolerance to, to carbon dioxide. Mm. And so we want to get your breathing like nice and slow and relaxed. Um, cause yeah, cause like the size of your tongue, like if we put weight on, our tongue gets fat, you know, it can, it can like cause problems there. So we would focus on, sometimes it's the most basic thing as well. We would use nasal strips to get the nose open. Um, they give us like 30% more space in the nose. Um, and we would focus on, making the breathing light and gentle. And so there's not, it, 
unfortunately, it's not always a silver bullet for everything. But what we can do is we can alleviate some of the symptoms. So we never say cure, even though there's a book called The Breathing Cure, we never say it cures, we never say it cures asthma. But what we can do is we can alleviate some of the symptoms with like light, slow and gentle breathing mm. techniques. Um, and um, yeah, I know some people that use like the CPAP machines and stuff. Uh, we do encourage them to also put their nasal strips on sometimes and see if that helps. So there's not... Unfortunately, it's probably not a cure for a lot of these things. It probably does come down to physiology as well. But um, yeah, there are definitely some techniques. We talk a lot about um, in my training around how sleep, exercise and rest are all linked together. And so if you're if you can fix any of those, it helps the rest. So, for example, if you can make sure that when you're exercising, you are with your mouth closed, then it just means that you're breathing a little bit slower and your body's a bit more relaxed. Mm-hmm. Um, and those things feed each other as well. So it's, um, yeah, there's, there's probably not a cure out there, unfortunately. It's probably just about alleviating the symptoms. You ever do uh, taping, lip yeah. taping? Yeah, yeah. I've got, all my, I've got all my stuff here for my clients. Yeah, so I've got my, got my mouth to tape here. Um, and I've recently been using those nasal strips as well. Yeah, I saw. Recently. Yeah, so, I saw yeah, you so on, they on are, Instagram yesterday. Yes. You had a photo. Yeah, because I went back to jiu-jitsu the first time after after two years, and I was always gasping for air. And 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 on Saturday, I was the only one that was like in control of my breath. And I was like, ah, that's good. Another reminder that it. it and I'm I'm not in the best shape still. Um, but uh, the mouth taping is very good because it gets people to be nasal breathing. And and for those that don't know like i didn't know just a few short years ago the mouth and nose are completely different they do different things the mouth is a beautiful backup but the nose filters the air warms the air cools the air sterilizes the air all these different things going on pressurizes the air and so we want to make sure that we are using the nose basically and one simple way to do that is a little bit a little bit of mouth tape on the old mouth Mm. and what do you Mm. think about um high altitude i'm i'm at eight thousand feet right now which is what 2500 meters i think yeah, so your body would most likely produce a few more red blood cells there yeah. now. And so I know some athletes will um, will do that before big events. Um, in one of my certifications, we do something called high-altitude training, and it's it's not a pleasant exercise. It's not a relaxing exercise. It's um, emptying your lungs. It's taking some steps, and it's having a sip of air, mm. a sip, and then another 10 steps and then a sip of air and you do that about five or six times and it's really intense but what you're doing there is you're getting your your tolerance to co2 up um so your body's better at handling those like the high uh carbon dioxide levels in your body um and it's a a simulated version of that and you start if you use a, a pulse oximeter you'll start to see your blood um your 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 uh oxygen saturation start to drop so you start yeah. to get used to working on lower levels yeah. and there was a study I think it was, um, you heard of EPO, right? You know, what Lance Armstrong was, uh, yeah. was using. There was a study, I think it was like 25 really strong breath holds. And I think they got like a 23% increase in EPO. The body mm. produced all this extra EPO. So there's loads of like hacks with the breath. Um, I was speaking to a guy a little while ago that was working with the All Blacks in um, New Zealand. And uh, a lot of these big teams, they don't really want you to know. This is years ago now, so the, the kind of the words out. But a lot of these teams, they don't want you to know that they're doing these things because it's not quite mainstream yet. It's catching up. So like, there's a lot of people that are doing breath work. They're not necessarily talking about it because they want to keep that kind of 
competitive advantage. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, high altitude, I think is, is, is wonderful. I always look at the Sherpas on those Everest documentaries and they're the true heroes, aren't they? You know, they're the ones that are running up and down, bringing the bags up and down. And, you know, some guy gets up there and he's like, well, hey, I've climbed this mountain, but you know, had all that help. And I think they've, they've adapted somehow, haven't they, over, over generations to handle that. And they're almost like a bit, bit superhuman compared to the rest of us. Yeah. In Peru as well, the, the people live in the Andes have higher, um, lung capacity because mm. you just an evolved uh, advantage over over years of you know generations of living at that high altitude yeah have you uh I, I had a guy on my podcast a few years ago uh adam skolnick i think his name is he wrote a book about free divers and he's a free diver mm. and mm. um he's a really interesting guy he, he's written a couple other books since then and and he writes for the new york times and and other you know, he's, he's pretty big time journalist. Um, but he's very into, um, that sort of breath holding, uh, you know, like I, I also yeah. my buddy Kyle, who's a big wave surfer, he did a breath holding workshop. I think he got up to four minutes. Nice. Yeah. 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 yeah that, I am. Um, oh, go, go ahead. No, have no, you done so that? I, uh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't quite get four minutes, but, um, one of the, there's a guy called Tom Zetas and he was the first human to hold his breath on record for 10 minutes. Now maybe fishermen were doing this in Greece like 5,000 years ago, probably, but he was the first one to to do it um, about, about seven or eight years ago. Um, And we've become quite close now. So I was just speaking to him earlier today, actually. Um, He invited me to his retreat in Corfu last year and he got my, my breath holds. I, I always struggle. One of the reasons I was drawn to, breath work is I always had like really bad anxiety and like quite high stress. Mm. And so when I did the Wim Hof, it got rid of that. I was like, wow, that's incredible. And it obviously came back again, but then I've learned these gentle breathing techniques. But anyway, um, he, I always struggled with my breath holds. So I'd get to a certain point and it'd be like, I'm about to have a panic attack and I, I just w- wouldn't be able to work on it. It was really, really awful. Um, and with him, Within a couple of days, I got to three minutes and 14 seconds as a breath wow. hold. Uh, and, and I, I know I could get to four minutes if we, we only did it for three days. Um, and that was, that was in the water. So it's incredibly dangerous. You, you'd only do it with like a professional and that, that like every 30 seconds or 20 seconds, you just give a little finger like up in the air to show you still breathe. You're still alive, not breathing. Um, because you can black out in there. Um, but it, it was what the, the most interesting thing was like, you come face to face with like your anxiety because it's like mm. you're holding your breath. You've got, you, you've got plenty of oxygen. You can probably survive much, much longer. Um, but you have to wrestle with like yourself. And so it's all about like being calm. So he's constantly saying to me, relax your neck, relax your shoulders. You're doing great. And just, and you can hear it because your head's under the water, but he's like right next to you. And he's like, you've just made one minute, you know, you've just made one minute, 30 seconds and you're doing great, Mike. And just, just that, like helping me to like, just relax. And then you go through these like shudders where your body is like just trying to save your life. You know, it's trying to make your diaphragm go and, and you're really fighting against it. And then you kind of come out of that and it's like relaxing. And I'm sure it happens a few more times, but he did it. He got to, he got to, I think 11 minutes the first time. And he also did 22 minutes, but that's huffing pure oxygen. So it's still very impressive. But mm. He did 22 minute, 22 second breath hold. Um, I think 15 million people watch that across the planet. And so this guy, he's so chilled. Like I was just telling the story the other day after we did some training in Corfu, you, you, you got, you've got to be fasted. So you can't have any water. You cannot drink the night before, you know, you can't have, uh, sorry, you can have water. You can't have any food. You can't have any alcohol the night before. You can't have any coffee. Um, 
and then you do your you do your exercise and then lunchtime comes and you can break your fast and you can relax and so i had a couple of coffees and a big sandwich and um about an hour later tom was still there with the same coffee and i'm like what are you doing? He goes, I, I like to taste my coffee. And he's just like sipping it. He's just so chilled and so relaxed. And it's like, I need to take a leaf out of this, uh, this guy's book. But yeah, it's, it's good. I, I couldn't get deep under the water because my ears, my, my tubes were not adjusting properly. So I got maybe, I think I got about seven meters down because we did some free diving as well. Uh, and that was still really cool. I remember looking up and you're on one breath and you're like, wow, that's amazing. But some people got really deep to the floor and, um, that was, that was, yeah, that, that's a, a incredible experience and again felt quite natural to be holding your breath underwater it's a really really bizarre thing again it's like something maybe we did many many generations ago it's in our mm-hmm. dna somewhere we'd go and get the fish or the turtle or something that i feel like there's a a theme in a lot of the things we're talking about which is whether it's the cold or the the you know holding breath or or fasting or or uh abseiling and like all these things there's like a there's a an initial phase you know or even what i was talking about with the sensory deprivation the flow tank mm. there's an initial phase where you're you're grappling with the experience and it creates anxiety yeah and if you go through that phase then there's a calming zone mm. there's a there's a zen zone but you need to go through the shit the turbulence to get to the zen right so yeah you know holding your breath the first 30 seconds you're going no no i'm gonna die i'm gonna die and then oh fasting the first 12 hours whatever oh, i'm hungry i'm hungry i'm hungry and then your body's like oh i feel light i feel fine um your divorce right yeah uh my relationship challenges yeah. quitting your job like yeah. it's all the same thing it's yeah it's really stressful and turbulent and crazy but then if you just pass through it then you're fine getting yeah. into the cold water is hard being in the cold water is not hard yeah first time i did yeah. it with with whim is first time i ever did it at all really i mean i jumped in streams and shit you know when i was a kid and growing up but when I met Wim and he set up the ice barrel um, and he was like, you want to do this? I said, sure, let's do it. And, um, and I just got in and he was, he said, okay, try to make it to, I don't know if it was 90 seconds or whatever it was. And he was standing there talking to me and we were having this chat and I was up to, you know, my neck in the water and, he was like, okay, you're almost there. And I said, I'm fine, Wim. This is fine. And he was almost, I think he was partly impressed and partly disappointed. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> I was just like, I don't know, man. This isn't, it's, it's just, it's fine. And, uh, you know, and then I passed 90 seconds and, you know, got up to two minutes and, and, and he was still counting it off. And after like three minutes, he's like, all right. Get out, get out of the water, motherfucker. I want to get in. There. <laughs> it's like, right, get out. Showed him up. <laughs> but it was, it was great. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's the transition that's hard. Yeah. It's not, you know, birth, right? Birth is hard. Yeah. Being alive is not that hard. Yeah. Maybe dying is hard. Being dead isn't hard, right? No. 
no it's, <laughs> you know you you know this better than most you know when in human history have we ever been this fucking comfortable never and it's not good for us is it we shouldn't mm. be able to have a thermostat i don't know you know i sit in this chair all day my body's just rotting in this chair i need to be yeah. moving and yeah um i think about that a lot you said you said on the podcast many years ago always take the hard road or something to that effect and i think about those words sound a lot. like me it sounds like <laughs> rogan i think rogan said that maybe i've mixed it i thought it was you but um i do think about that a lot which is like we're way too comfortable and we just we just we just destroy i don't know like i don't get enough daylight in my eyes you know cold showers so we've we we find all these little hacks i think because it gives us something from our past. It's like, yeah. oh, we should be uncomfortable, and that's 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 normal. We should be we should be fasting um, because we probably went days without food, you know, and our ancestors. And uh, in fact, that's I've, I wanted to tell you about. Have you heard? Have you heard of breatharianism? Yeah, people think they can survive on breath alone. So this is so. First of all, disclaimer: do not do this. This is this is people die. But right. I've just interviewed the guy that did a 10 year documentary about it and it was fascinating. I've got, it's going to come out probably next week, the document, uh, the, the, the podcast. Um, and, and it was really interesting because there's, there's two camps. There's people that claim never to have eaten anything. There's a guy called Pralad Yanni and he, he's di- he's, he died at 90, but he went 70 years apparently without a drop of water or an ounce of food. But then there's this other camp and it relates back to what you're saying. There's a load of breatharians that are getting by on around 300 calories a day. And he references this book called "We're Eating Ourselves to Death," um, and and it's and that one seems more more re, more possible to me that we can sustain ourselves for an incredibly long period of time on on very little. Um, and he even quotes a study around and this is by the way this is really controversial shit, but he's like there's some studies out there that photosynthesis in humans could be possible in terms of we can get something from the from the sunlight and there's all I know Wim's done sun gazing and he's talked about that sort of stuff. So it's a very interesting field. I'm not necessarily bought into it, but it's just this thing around maybe we are eating way too much. He he talks about calorific theory and how there's some bits that might not actually work out and Anyway, it's a whole thing. There's a documentary people should check out. And like I say, he poured 10 years of his life in, into this, traveled all around the world, went to India and met these, these people that claim to do it and people in China and, and all sorts of stuff. But, um, yeah, I think it comes back to this thing around we, we can, we should be uncomfortable and maybe we are eating, maybe two and a half thousand calories a day isn't a recommended daily amount. Maybe that's just something we've, we've come up with now, right? I don't know. Yeah. And these are the same people who, you know, the U S food is it the food and drug administration comes up with, uh, no, it's, it's not the, the food pyramid with, you know, like eat lots of yeah. grains and, grains. you know, pasta yeah. as much pasta yeah. as yeah. possible. It's like, what? Yeah. yeah. I don't yeah. think their advice on nutrition <laughs> is all that reliable, but I also yeah. think that nobody has lived for 70 years without a drop of water or, or any food. I, I don't think so. I think that person's a fucking charlatan, a yes. dead charlatan <laughs> at this point. Um, well, he is dead now. Yeah. 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 He died anyway. Uh, Mike, what's the name of your podcast? Is it take a deep breath? Uh, yeah. So it's the breath cast on take a deep breath It's on Spotify and iTunes. And then we've got the main YouTube channel, which is take a deep breath. And about 250 exercises on there now so you can go on there and fill your boots all for free um and if anyone's interested in working with me one-on-one my website is takedeepbreath.co.uk and there's multiple ways we can work together courses and different bits and bobs but uh yeah if you want to try some free breathing exercises feel free to pop on over to, to youtube fantastic hey i'm really glad things are working out for you man thank you mate thank you it's you're, always a pleasure talking to you you're coming from from a good place and uh 
I think that's, that's so important. You know, so many people are, and I don't blame anybody. Everybody, you know, is trying to find a way to make a living and monetize whatever they're interested in. And, you know, uh, but I think that a lot of people are, are primarily motivated by, you know, their own selfishness. And, and since I met you, I could feel you're motivated by something deeper than that. So mm-hmm. I applaud that. And I, I really appreciate that energy in you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you. Just because I want to What's the difference if you turn away I'm gonna die one day Why do you waste your time Thinking about your reputation Trying to meet an expectation Wondering what they're gonna say When everyone you've ever known Is headed for a headstone body is an animal doesn't ask for much a little music and a soft touch why don't you let it out to play your heart is in a birdcage singing in your chest you want to shut it up but give it a rest you're gonna die one to the ground.